All right, I invite you to turn in your scriptures to Psalm 51 today. We're in a sermon series where we're covering different psalms and parts of Proverbs as well over the summer. Psalms are useful in that they can be uh, used on various occasions for different purposes. This Psalm 51 is a psalm of confession, and as such, it's uh, a very instructive psalm for us to be able to use in a time where we perhaps have realized that we've gone astray, we've done something that we regret, and it's a psalm that teaches us how to be able to come back to God. So not to spend a minute more than is absolutely necessary away from God's loving presence and experience of His uh, his care for us, but it's a psalm that directs us to return to God who's love and rich in mercy and who desires to bring forgiveness and renewal into our lives. So Psalm 51 starts off like this, to the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone to Bathsheba. This psalm was written by King David of Israel, and David was the second king. He was a noteworthy person because of what a righteous man he was. Uh, he was said in, in Scripture to have been a man after God's own heart. And what's surprising about David is up until this situation with Bathsheba, uh, he'd, he'd had a pretty much spotless record. I mean, this is a person who is uh, just high character, noble, honorable, and yet uh, in this one particular moment we see just his, his radical sin exposed. David was on the roof of his palace and he's looking out and he sees a woman taking a bath whose name is Bathsheba. Uh, bath, Bathsheba, I thought maybe the two have something together to do, to do with each other, but there's no connection. It's just random that her name is Bathsheba. But she was taking a bath and he noticed her and he uh, invited her to his palace and he slept with her and she became pregnant. Uh, she was married to another man whose name is Uriah. And so when she became pregnant, then David sought to cover up his tracks. But eventually he had Uriah killed. And then he took Bathsheba to be his own wife. So this is incredibly shocking for such a good person, the king of Israel, to do such an ignoble thing. And the prophet Nathan comes and tells, tells David a story and confronts him on his sin. And in that moment, as David realizes what he's done, it sinks in. The horror of what he's done has sunk in. And he cries out to God, and he confesses to God and asks God to cleanse him. So that's, that's what this passage is about. So um, as, I, as I read a couple verses from this chapter, uh, just listen along. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly. From my sin and cleanse me from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Hide your face from my sins, skipping to verse 9, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. In recent years, the evangelical world has been rocked with what feels like scandal after scandal where prominent Christian leaders have an incredible moral failing. Uh, these are 
tremendously harmful. Um, you know, the, the fallout from these things, is, without question, is, is devastating. It affects people in the churches. Churches sometimes fall apart over this. It affects the, the faith life of many people who put their faith and trust in that particular leader, and it, and it sends a message of hypocrisy. But I also wonder at times if perhaps in our expectation that leaders would be, always be above reproach, we think that this kind of thing would never happen. It does reflect, I believe, a little bit of a, of a naive, naivete on our part, because after all, right, everyone is human. And as human, we all struggle with what the Bible calls a sin nature or the, the flesh. And so what this means is that even the most righteous person at times will fall. Uh, it's inevitable. People will let us down. There is no person who lives a perfectly moral and upright life at every moment. But Psalms is very realistic about this. And the scripture is very realistic about this, about the fallen human nature. Even kings fail. Even as upsetting as it is, even pastors fall into temptation. Even the most righteous man will lose his temper and lash out at loved ones. Even the most faithful wife can fall into the trap of looking for love in the wrong place. People can and will disappoint us. So it would be naive of us to, to expect that this, would that this type of thing would never happen because we are human and we, we shouldn't be shocked by it. Um, but what we should be shocked by is what Psalm 51 reveals, not about the human nature, but what it reveals about God. God who is holy and God who is righteous, but at the same time, a God who is a father. A God who's not looking like so many of us think, that he's just there to, to heap guilt and shame on us and to make, make us feel terrible for the things we did. But that's not what God looks like in Psalm 51. Rather, God looks like a God who welcomes us into his presence, who's able to bring forgiveness into our lives and to change us from the inside out. And so I called this sermon the, the joy of confession. All right? And if some of you are from a Catholic background, then I'm sure you never thought that going to confession was a joyful activity. I realize it's kind of clickbaity, so I apologize for that. But maybe what I meant to say is that the result of confession is joyful. When we go to God in our brokenness and we bring our sin before him, the transformation that God can bring into our lives, he's longing to forgive and to heal and to redeem, to restore. And, and the confession is that pathway to get there. It's part of repentance is coming clean before God and acknowledging the ways that are present in our life, the things that are present in our life that are, that are not pleasing to him. And it's a very important part part of the Christian life that we don't always talk about. Obviously, you know, a sermon on sin is, is not going to be, it's not going to attract the crowds, and yet it's so important because this, this, this path of confession is how we get right with God. And I, I think that this is important for you. Remember, make a mental note, 51, put it in your brain so that if you ever have a situation in your life where perhaps you've sinned, you've made a bad mistake, you've harmed someone, and this is a psalm that you can come back to that will show you how you can get right with God again. So I really encourage you to remember Psalm 51 and come back to it. My main point today is simple and is that God makes it possible for you to be set free from your sin and to be made right with God and that confession is the path. God makes it possible for you to be restored. Confession is the way that you get there. So let's look at the first point here. What we see about God is God is a God who forgives. Um, I would like to call your attention to verse 4. So if you have your Bible, take a look at verse 4 and see what it says. Something that is a bit surprising. Um, against you, 
You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Right? I, thought, I thought David committed adultery and I thought that he had Uriah killed. So why does David say against you and you only have I sinned? That's a little strange. Is he discounting the, the sin, that, that, the obvious sin that David did against Uriah? Well, actually, what we need to remember is that Psalms is poetic language. And so when we read poetry, you know, poetry uses a lot of, um, a lot of metaphors, pictures, images. Uh, it's not necessarily meant to be technical. It's just not how poetry is written. Poetry is language of the heart. And so as we read this, when David is saying, God against you and you only have I sinned, let's not take that, that technically, but let's take that as revealing kind of David's experience in that moment. What is he feeling? And the weight of what David is feeling as he expresses in this poetic language is that his sin is ultimately and probably most fundamentally a sin against God. And so we can stop right there and just, um, just think about the fact that even a lot of our what I might call horizontal sin, which are like the kinds of things that we say and do to each other that are unkind, that, that there's a vertical aspect to those things. All sin ultimately is sin against God because God created the world and God has established his principles in the world and they, they are to be obeyed and God has a, has a law that is in place that governs human interactions. Not only that, but God made every single person in, in his image. So God considers you and your brother and your sister and your friends all to be divine image bearers that have inherent worth and value as people. And so if that's true, then that means that if I snub my brother, or I curse my brother, or I yell at my kids, or I'm disrespectful to somebody, that in a way God feels that. That yeah, it is a sin against my fellow human being, but more true, more ultimately, it is also a sin against God who made that person and who identifies with that, with that person. The Pharisees and then in the New Testament, they get a lot of stuff wrong. But one thing that they got right was that they said, who can forgive sin but God alone? They recognized that, that at the end of the day, ultimately, all sin is sin against God. And that is the primary aspect of sin that we need to concern ourselves. This doesn't mean that we don't seek forgiveness. It doesn't mean that we don't seek restoration in our relationships with each other. But we can't forget that ultimately sin against, is a sin against God. It represents a rupture in the vertical relationship, our relationship with God. And so whenever we sin and we recognize it, it is a call to go to God. And that's the next, the next part of, of this, when we see what God is like, um, what's incredible. David has been confronted with something of staggering proportions, what he's done. It's just, it's an awful thing. I think we can all agree. He did an awful thing. The, the normal human reaction when being confronted by something of that nature would be to get defensive, to argue, to feel ashamed, and begin to probably run away. But what we see David do in Psalm 51, he is confronted and the immediate reaction is he goes to God. He goes to the only one, the one who is truly offended, yes, but the only one who can really bring resolve into his life. And that's a lesson for us as well. One of Satan's most impressive tactics, in my opinion, is that when we fall into some sort of a sin, we feel ashamed. But the way shame works is when we feel ashamed, we isolate 
and we go away from God, and we, we go away from other people. And shame has an insidious kind of effect where because you're sensing, that, that sensing God's anger or you're, you're afraid of God's holiness, right, you withdraw, and then Satan says, well, you feel so ashamed, and you're so worthless, and nobody really cares about you. We might as well do the very thing that caused you the shame in the first place. Shame experienced leads, in my opinion, if it's not dealt with, leads to shameful behavior. And then what happens when you engage in more shameful behavior is you feel even more ashamed. And so it's a kind of vicious cycle that leads us to, to draw away from God. And even though God loves us, even though God wants to invite us back and heal us and, re and redeem us, in our fear and in our shame, we avoid God. And oftentimes we avoid each other too. And we don't come clean with each other. We don't admit what's, re what's really going on. We think, well, we're not a good person. I probably shouldn't celebrate communion today. Maybe we don't show up to church, right? That shame leads us to distance ourselves from the very source of healing. So we got to fight shame. And the way you fight shame is by learning from David. When you are confronted, you don't run. You turn back to God and go to him. Go to the one who cares. And that might sound intimidating. You feel convicted about your, your sin. Why would you go to God? But what does David show and reveal about God? Well, look at, look at verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. The God that is revealed for us in Psalm 51 is a God who cares about you. He is a God that is willing to forgive you, right? Scripture says it's not God's wrath that drives us to repentance, but it's his kindness that draws us to repentance. We turn to God and God because we can trust God. He is like a loving father and he wants very much to lift that burden from your shoulder. He does not want you to be dealing with shame in that, in that vicious cycle. He doesn't want you to just to if you feel guilty and you're convicted and you go to God, great. But he doesn't want you to just live in unresolved guilt. That's not God's plan. Your guilt is meant to drive you to God. But once you go to God, God is kind. He's loving. He wants to relieve that burden. And he cares about you and he loves you. He, he has steadfast love. In Hebrew, chesed means that the steadfast, you know, uh, never-ending covenant faithful of, uh, faithfulness of God. It's a very rich Hebrew concept that describes God. He never gets too sick of you. He never gets tired of forgiving. He always is welcoming and faithful and kind and says, come, come, come. I will heal you. I will forgive you. It's God's kindness that leads us to repentance, not his anger. Uh, we read about that in Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Jesus says, you know, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, for my yoke is easy, my burden is light. God does not want to be putting additional burdens on you. That's not his goal. He wants to set you free, to lighten your load. So confession is the way we go, and, and it's through that that he is able to help us experience his love and his peace in our life. So to recap uh, point one, Psalm 51 teaches us that we fall short, that we all sin against each other and against God, that we shouldn't be naive to that fact. We should realize, yeah, we have a devil on one shoulder and an angel on the other, and far too often we take the advice from the wrong side. We, we do things we regret, but that instead of wallowing in guilt, and instead of just being consumed by shame and spiraling into the very things that you hate, when you are convicted, you go to God immediately. First response, you go to the source. Go to the one who can bring you healing. And we can trust God because he is good. 
He's loving, he's kind. So that brings us to um, our second point today, which is the nature of true repentance. As if we're willing to, to do that, where we take that step of going to God, what does that look like? Uh, a number of years ago, I learned about a very helpful distinction that, that I think you need to learn as well that we read about in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. It is the difference, the distinction between uh, worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. We read about in 2 Corinthians 7, uh, Paul has confronted the Corinthians about some sin in the church. He was afraid that his confrontation was too strong and that he had offended them and that they would be so hurt that they would kind of fall away. But he is thankful that, um, that they didn't receive it that way. So this, listen to what he says. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. As we come to God, we've got to be mindful of the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow is sorry that you got caught. It's sorry for the repercussions of your mistakes, right? When we do something really colossally stupid or, or, or foolish or evil, oftentimes there's very natural consequences that come from that. And worldly sorrow, is, it's not really a genuine heart of regret that you did something but more like self-pity, like, oh my goodness, now look what I have to deal with because, you know, it's like when you blame the cop. You're speeding down the road and you feel sorry for yourself because you, you're getting a ticket, but you made the decision to speed, right? The cop's just doing his job. Are you mad at the cop? So that's not, that's not, that's not godly sorrow. That's worldly sorrow. Uh, I had to, uh, I, I learned the difference, I, sorry, I observed the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow this week with one of my sons. Uh, my son was... Uh, he was harassing his younger sister. She was, she was pestering him. It's true. But the thing is, little sisters can be pests sometimes, but you still have to love them. And uh, being a pest is not an excuse to speak disrespectfully to your sister. So I, I heard the commotion. I called him forward, and I, I said, Son, I, um, you know, the way you're speaking to your sister is, is really not kind, and I, I would like you to stop doing that. He was very defensive and uh, argued with me and well she deserved it and she was doing x y and z and i'm like i'm not here to argue with you i'm just telling you that despite whatever she may have done it's not okay for you to talk to your sister that way and he was still defiant and arguing and really not taking any ownership and so i said well i think that you are going to lose your second 30 minutes of screen time today and i've never seen anybody repent so quickly <laughs> he immediately became he immediately became very sorry well, that's, that's worldly sorrow. That's not godly sorrow. God, godly sorrow recognizes, right, that sin is against God, and, and sin drives a, a wedge between us and God. It destroys our intimacy with God. I feel so guilty when I, when I knowingly sin that I can barely pray. I don't know if you ever experienced that. Right? When we sin, it, it really puts a block there in our, in our connection with God. We feel his anger. Godly sorrow is recognizing that there's been a rupture in the relationship and it desires genuine change. It's genuine sorry, not just for the results of what happened that I deserve, by the way, but the person that was hurt, the relationship that was affected, the harm that was caused. 
So in Psalm 51, do we see that? Do we see worldly sorrow or godly sorrow? And I would suggest to you that I think Psalm 51 is an excellent example of godly sorrow, that David really has, he's not just in self-pity. Listen, does he come to ter- is he coming to terms with and perhaps having a fresh revelation of his sin? Yes. But it's not just about the repercussions. It's not just about the punishment. He is legitimately regretful for what he's done and desires to be made right with God. He desires to do right by God and to become a different kind of a person. So there's two things that he asks. Look, take a look, first of all, at verse 9 and think about what's he, what is he asking there. He says, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. There, he's kind of asking for a clean slate, isn't he? he David recognizes that because of his crime, he is guilty under God's law and that guilt results in, in punishment and the wrath of God, separation from God. So he knows that his sin is a big deal and he needs to be cleansed from his sin. He needs a clean slate. He needs a fresh start. He knows that. But you could think of that as courtroom righteousness or maybe some people in theology call it forensic righteousness. Forensic righteousness is when the court says, you are not guilty. Let's say you're accused of some crime and you go through trial and the verdict is not guilty. Okay, great. Your slate is clean. You come out. You're, you're considered righteous in the eyes of the law. And that's, that's having a blank slate, having your sin forgiven. That's having a blank slate in the eyes of God. That's important. We need God to forgive our sin, to remove our sin, because no sin can exist in God's presence. But it doesn't stop there. David's not just looking for a facelift. He's looking for a heart transplant. He's not just looking for a superficial fix. He's not just looking for God to consider him clean, but to make him clean. He recognizes that his sin points to a deeper reality in his life, and he wants the Spirit of God to work and to transform him. And we see that if you look at verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. You know, like it would be one thing if my my son said to me, listen, Dad, I'm sorry. Can you please forgive me for how I was treating my sister? Say, I gotta tell him, go tell her you're sorry. But let's say I did forgive him, and I, I say, you're off the hook. Okay, that's one thing, but it would be an entirely different thing if he said to me, you know what, Dad, I wonder what it is about me that really wants to be mean to my sister sometime, and would you help me fix that part of me, help me to be more loving and kind to her? That would be a different conversation. By the way, that has never happened, but uh, <laughs> maybe someday it will. Although, I was talking to a pastor earlier, and he said that whenever he uses his kids in sermons, he has to pay them $5. So I should probably in, institute that if I'm going to keep using them as, as examples. But, but anyway, that, see, that's the godly sorrow. That's what David has, is, is not just forgive me for what I did wrong, but can you change my heart? Can you renew me and make me desire to be righteous and to be holy? Make me willing to do that. That's why he, he prays for willingness. You know, willingness is so important. Sometimes we're really attached to our sin. We really like whatever it is. It makes us feel good. Maybe it's an escape. Maybe it's a certain behavior that you're ashamed of. And the, the thought of, you know, leaving it behind maybe causes you a lot of fear, a lot of anxiety. What am I going to do? Am I going to be okay? I need that thing. I need that thing in my life. And you may not be able to imagine going your whole life without partaking of that again. You know, like in Alcoholics Anonymous, they, they tell alcoholics, it's not, don't worry about never drinking a drink of alcohol for the rest of your life. Just worry about not drinking today. It's one day at a time. All you need is a little bit of willingness. Just a little bit of willingness. 
Say, God, I don't know if, I, I know I want this in my head, but I don't know if my heart wants it. Would you give me a clean heart? Make me willing to serve you. Just make me willing. That desire for willingness is enough for God to come in and to work a new, new work in your life. And that, that's what's so incredible and what's so joyful about confe- confession is that not only is the power of God revealed in his willingness to forgive you and his ability to forgive you through Christ, which I'll talk about later, but it is also in his power to bring about real change in your life. So that brings me to my final point. What does God actually want from us? When it comes to confession and it comes to acknowledgement of sin, I think there's two approaches. I think what you see in the secular world is that people think that you get to heaven by being a good person, just trying hard to be nice. But the problem is I've met a lot of people who think that they're good people who have glaring sin in their life in the way that they treat others, but they're not willing to acknowledge it because in their minds and in their hearts, they're convinced that they're a good person. So the problem with the just be a good person mentality is it leads to pride, leads to a feeling of being superior than all those other people out there who are struggling. God is not impressed. Scripture says that we all fall short. Pastors fall short. Leaders fall short. Right? We have all fallen short of the glory of God. We can't, through our own attempts, be good enough for God on our own steam. It's not possible. Then you have the religious approach to confession. I think the religious approach is something like this. We go through extreme measures to try to earn God's favor through sacrifices, through acting morose, and sometimes even falling into patterns of self-contempt. We think that if we can make ourselves feel badly enough for what we've done, we can kind of punish ourselves. And that if God sees how sorry we really are, then maybe he'll let, he'll let us off the hook. But that doesn't work either. That's not what God's looking for, to walk around in self-contempt, and self-hatred, and shame. It's not what God wants for us, and that is not how we are made right with God. Jesus didn't come and die on the cross and take our sin and our shame on his own shoulders so that we could just wallow in shame and self-pity and self-hatred. That is not what he wants for us. That is not what confession is about. Look carefully, verse 16 and 17, as we get to the end of the psalm. For you will not delight in sacrifices, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. God is not looking for you to try to make restitution, although if you can, you certainly should try. He's not looking to you... to make sacrifices. He's not looking to you to pour contempt and shame on yourself. The fact is that through Jesus Christ and his death on the cross, God has already paid the cost for you. The cross is a picture of an innocent man suffering horrendous pain and being exposed in shame for the whole world to see. And Jesus, the Son of God, was innocent. So when we imagine Christ suffering on the cross in such a way and being exposed and being shamed, we have to ask the question, why? And the truth is that God came into the world in order to take the sin that we deserved 
on his own shoulders. He died to set us free from sin. Right? Sometimes you're afraid of confessing sin, but did you know that before you've even gone to God, he's already forgiven you? Before you even spell out the particulars of what you've done, he's already made it possible for you to be welcomed into his family. And if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ and you've, you've confessed and you've repented, repentance is ongoing, but it, but it starts with that, that initial acknowledgement of your shortcomings before God, the fact that in and of ourselves we don't measure up, but Jesus measures up for us. And he takes the punishment of sin, the wrath of God, on his shoulders. He is exposed so that God can cover us with his love and with his mercy. It is not God's purpose to expose you. It is not God's purpose to shame you. He took that on himself so that you could be set free, so that you could have your shame taken away. Listen, I'm not saying that sometimes we don't do things that we ought to be ashamed of. Right? Shame is a natural human feeling. It's a, it's a normal consequence of, of doing something, acting shamefully. We feel ashamed. It's natural. But we don't stay there. God says, come to me. Let me take that shame off of you. I've paid the price for you. The sacrifice God wants is not self-contempt. It's not this kind of morose, self-flagellating. Um, Maybe we have the image of the medieval monk who's just punishing him, himself by whipping himself in the back. That's not what God wants. He took the punishment in our place. He says the sacrifices of God are a broken and contrite spirit. God doesn't want your sacrifices. He wants your humility. He wants you to check your ego at the door. He wants you to admit you need help. He wants you to come to him and be teachable. Be willing. Willing for him to change you. We look to him and trust and he will do what he needs. He's good. He's loving. We can trust him. He cares for us. He will heal us and make us new. Um, how many of you remember Bernie Madoff and his gigantic Ponzi scheme? Handful of you. He built thousands of Americans out of millions, billions of dollars. And uh, at his sen sentencing trial, man, the victims were mad. And they, they wanted the full penalty for Bernie. There's no grace whatsoever. This is what they said. This is what one of the victims said. He cheated his victims out of their money so that he and his wife Ruth and their two sons could live a life of luxury beyond belief. This life is normally reserved for royalty, not for common thieves. I cry every day when I see the look of pain and despair in my husband's eyes. I cry for the life, the life we once had before that monster took it away. Our two sons and daughters-in-law have rallied with constant love and support. You, on the other hand, Mr. Madoff, have two sons that despise you. Your wife, rightfully so, has been vilified and shunned by her friends in the community. You have left your children a legacy of shame. I have a marriage made in heaven. You have a marriage made in hell. And that is where you, Mr. Madoff, are going to return. May God spare you no mercy. The victims were mad, clearly. They were very, they were very mad. And they, you know, in fairness, they, they did, people suffered tremendously, right? Their life savings were just, just evaporated like that overnight. Their desire was for Bernie Madoff to suffer justice, to get exactly what his deeds deserved for what he had done. They wanted him to rot in hell for what he had done. But I wonder, what is God like? 
Many people might be very, very offended at the idea that God is so kind and so merciful that he could forgive even a person like Bernie Madoff. That's not fair, they would say. That's not just. And if God is truly just, then why doesn't he punish the bad guys? Why doesn't he make them pay for the harm that they've done and the sin that, the sin that they've done and the harm that they've caused? But let me ask you a question. What would it really look like if God justly punished everyone for their sins? What would that really look like? God showed us his justice on the cross. The cross is what justice looks like. It is a sacrifice for sins, and it would have been perfectly just for God to have punished all sinners for their own sins, to make each one of us face the music for the variety of things that we have done against him. But God demonstrated his love and his mercy by coming down from heaven and becoming a man and going to the cross in our place. God is just. He punishes sin, but he is loving and he is kind. And he bore the cost in our place so that you and I would not have to pay the consequences so that we could be set free. And that leads to humility that leads to meekness on our part. And I hope that as you go from here today, if you ever sense, even for a minute, that perhaps God is displeased with you, that you have done something that you regret, that instead of sitting with that, instead of wallowing in shame, go to God. Be made right with God. Do it immediately. You'll feel a million times better. Sin drives a wedge in our relationship with God. It's not his purpose to, to cover you with shame, but to cover you with grace. And as we confess our sins, we receive God's forgiveness. We experience his love and our relationship is healed. You will be transformed. Please remember Psalm 51 as you go from here today. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, we're so, we, we can't even really, I don't think, fathom just the lengths that you have gone to to bring us forgiveness and love. And so, Lord, we, we just, we worship you. We confess that you are God. Lord, it's not comfortable to talk about sin. I, I know that. But we also know what the Bible teaches. And the Bible teaches that we all have a sin problem. And yet through Christ, Lord, you are able to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. I pray, Lord, that shame would lift from this congregation. I pray that, um, that, that, that distancing would, would be gone, that, that we would not be a, a church that runs away or is naive about sin, but that we be a church that confronts it, but lovingly, and that turns to you for forgiveness, turns to you for redemption, and turns to you for healing. Lord, we pray that shame would lift that shame would lift from our lives and that we would grow, each one of us, just to appreciate how much you love us, how much you care for us, so much more than we could possibly imagine. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.